You are listening to episode 55 of the Tennis Files podcast with special guest James Blake. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis Files Podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mehrban Iranshad. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files Podcast, and it is really an honor to have James Blake on the show today. As many of you all may know, he was formerly ranked number four in the world on the ATP Tour. Uh, He amassed 10 singles titles. He appeared in 24 singles finals as well, and he's beaten some of the greatest players in the world, such as Rafael Nadal, Andre Agassi, Leighton Hewitt, and Andy Roddick. Uh, And I really enjoyed speaking with James about his second book, uh, which came out recently called Ways of Grace. Uh, And it is really a fantastic book that details the stories of many uh, legendary uh, athletes and you know, very well-known uh, people in the world and how they use their voice to speak out against uh, on certain issues, very important social issues. And so I really appreciated uh, James speaking with me. Uh, he was uh, very busy, you know, his, he was actually in LA at the time uh, when we spoke. I believe he was filming uh, some stuff about uh, the Shanghai uh, Masters tournament, doing some commentating. And what I always remember about James is uh, my dad and I used to watch him play at the Leg Mason Tennis Classic, which is now the City Open in D.C. And I, we'd always notice that he would thank the ball boys every single time he or she gave uh, James a tennis ball or uh, fetched James a towel. And, you know, that's actually uh, pretty rare, as le- at, at least as far as what I've seen uh, the players and how they uh, act towards the ball kids. And so I really admired that. And uh, James, uh, you know, just had a great career and really uh, was a pleasure uh, to speak with James uh, on the podcast. And so without further ado, here's my interview with James Blake. James, I really appreciate you joining me uh, on the Tennis Files podcast. First off, uh, how's your day going? I know you're in L.A. and you were shooting some uh, tennis channel stuff. So how's everything going? Yeah, everything's going good. Um, it's a little crazy hours. I'm still uh, haven't gotten into work yet. I go into work a little later at uh, eight o'clock at night and go through the middle of the night because we're we're uh, we're talking about Shanghai and to go live. We're we're doing that kind of in the middle of the night. Cool, cool. Yeah, yeah. My dad actually told me that he heard you commentating on the TFO match a little bit earlier. So pretty yeah, sweet. Watching that, it was quite a bit earlier. It was uh, that was about two a.m. that I finished uh, West Coast time. So if he was watching it in a on the East Coast, he was getting up real early in the morning. Nice, nice, James. Well, you know, we're here today mainly to talk about uh, your new book, uh, Ways of Grace, uh, Stories of Activism, Adversity, and How Sports Can Bring Us Together. And, uh, you know, first, many congratulations on that. And, you know, the first question I have for you is, did it get any easier, you know, after the first one? Um, no, well, it was really completely different. And um, I never thought I would, um, I didn't know if I'd ever write a second book. The first one, uh, happened pretty organically. It was just something I thought about when I was sick and injured and not sure if I'd play tennis again. Um, so I actually thought about writing and then it took a back seat when I 
uh, did come back when I was at, when I restarted my career. And then once things started going well, the publisher came to me and said, Hey, we'd, we'd love for you to write and talk about your experiences coming back. So it was all about me and what I'd gone through and what my family went through. And, um, so that was, I don't want to say easy, but that was, it was also cathartic to, for me to just talk about everything that was going on in my life. And then this one, it, it felt like almost, uh, being back in school because I was learning so much. I was learning about other athletes and their stories and, you know, which ones we should include and, and how we should, um, you know, tell these stories, this, these uplifting stories, and then just kind of weaving in a little bit of my story. So it was more about all the other athletes and, and what they were doing to, uh, to influence change. So for me, it was, it was totally different than just strictly talking about me. Um, I feel like this book, the only parts about that were maybe the forward and, um, you know, the introduction and the, uh, the summary, the closing. So, other than that, I feel like so much of it was just about other athletes and, and their uh, their journey. So I, I enjoyed it a lot. And um, it was, yeah, it was just two totally different processes. That's awesome, James. And, you know, I've started reading your book and I've really been enjoying it. There's so many amazing stories. And uh, I just wanted to ask, you know, first of all, when you wrote that book, you know, what do you want uh, the readers to get from it? You know, if there's one thing you could pick, well, what would you want the readers to get out of reading Ways of Grace? Well, the one thing I think they should get, and I hope they get, is that athletes are human beings. They're not just uh, the character you see on the screen. They're not actors. They're not anything like that, where they're just playing a role out there and just um, all, all they are and everything about them is just whether they can catch a football or whether they can shoot a basketball uh, or whether they can hit a tennis ball. They have concerns. They have families. They have lives. And um, they have ups and downs, the same as uh, everyone else. So, um there's so many athletes that um, have been in the news for negative situations, uh, for uh, arrests or for things they're doing that, that aren't bringing the positive light to their teams, to themselves. Um, but there's so many others that are doing great things that off the field, off the court, um, want to make a difference in a positive way, want to fight for social justice, want to fight for equal rights. And many of them have been in the past and in pa previous generations. And I talk about sort of the, a generation where not a lot of people were speaking out. And now I feel like we're back to a situation where there are a lot of athletes that are speaking out. And I think um, social media has changed that because it's given people the opportunity to have a direct line with uh, their fans and for fans to actually have a line to their to the athletes and really learn more about them. Because in generations past, you had to call a press conference. You had to be doing something exciting on the field to get that press conference, to get that opportunity. Now, with, um, you know, with ways to just get out your your message, whether it be on Charlie, whether it be on Twitter, whether it be on Instagram, you can get it out immediately just to every one of your fans on, you know, at any time, if you have a thought in the middle of the night, you get it out and people will respond. Yeah, uh, I really agree with that, uh, James. And so, you know, obviously you, you've spoken to, you know, and written about many uh, of the athletes. And I was actually just curious, you know, what percentage of the, the athletes that you uh, and political figures in the book were you able to speak with? Did you interview some of them one-on-one? Uh, -on -one? Yeah, I interviewed a few. I interviewed um, Chris Cluey, uh, the punter for, uh, for uh, former punter uh, Minnesota Vikings. I interviewed um, Billy Jean King, Martina Navratilova, Meb Kaflesky, uh the runner uh, from Eritrea who uh, won the New York City Marathon. Um, so I, I think I probably did five or six interviews, but um, um, my co-writer as well, Carol Taylor, did a few uh, also, and um, then others. We just um, we just talked about give gave kind of my spin on stories that were in the press or that had been going on like Colin Kaepernick, you know, that's, I never got a chance to speak to him directly, but I just uh, went and gave my opinion on all the drama and all the um, hype surrounding his protests. 
And so, you know, obviously in your book, you definitely advocate for athletes to speak out. You know, they have a, a special platform, you know, because of their status and things like that. But, you know, obviously a lot of them may be afraid to do that because of the repercussions. Uh, you know, you speak about an Australian runner uh, who, you know, he basically ruined his career because he, you know, in the 1968 uh, Olympic Games, he uh, wore a patch to support uh, the other runners. And so what would you say to those athletes who kind of maybe feel apprehensive or afraid? I mean, do you, do you have any sort of messages or words of encouragement to help them become uh, brave? Yeah, I would say, well, most athletes, I feel like are brave to, to get to the, the spot they're at in their careers. It, it takes a, a, a lot to put yourself out in the public spotlight. Um, but if you are going to take any sort of a stance, if you're going to, um, protest anything, if you're going to be out there and, and take a, um, take on an issue that may be controversial, then just my only advice would be recognize that there may be consequences and be, you have to be okay with that. I mean, Colin Kaepernick may have cost himself 20, $30 million if, if he never gets another job in the NFL, but I think he's okay with that. And he's accepted that that's his role and it's going to help him sleep at night to know that he's done the right thing and he's done it for the right reasons. And I think uh, for any athlete, if you're going to take a stand, you can't take a stand and then half-heartedly back off once you face any sort of pushback, once you face any sort of criticism. You have to know that that's coming. And I talk about that in the book, that I think it is important for athletes um, to have a voice if they, if they want. If they want to be educated on a situation or on a topic and go out there and speak about it, they have this platform. And then once they use it, they have to know that there's going to be uh, people against them. And most athletes, I think, are aware of that. They go into, you can be the most beloved athlete in the world. If you go into the, the visiting team's uh, home stadium, you're probably going to hear some boos. You're going to hear people that are that are negative towards you, and they'll they'll pick away at anything they possibly can to, um, to cut you down. And that's the same case with no matter how um, noble your cause might be, there's going to be people that might um, try to take that away from you. They might say you're doing it for publicity reasons. They might say anything about you. So um, you just have to recognize that and, and be okay with uh, the sacrifices you're making. If, if you know the ends justify the mean, if you feel like at the end of it, um, what you're doing is worth taking a little bit more heat, is worth taking, a, you know, taking some of that drama and adding it to your life, then go ahead and do it. And I don't fault anyone for saying, you know what, that's not where I am in my career. I can't do that. Um, if you, if you feel like it's going to cost you your job and you need that job to pay the bills, to, to put food on the table, of your family, and that's, what's going to take priority in your life, then, you know, so be it. I'm not going to criticize anyone for, for not taking that step, but I just want them to recognize that there, that is a step that can be taken. And if they do take it, realize that there are sometimes going to be sacrifices. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. I really appreciate that very reasonable you know, approach that you mentioned. And so obviously there's just so many uh, crazy and uh, amazing stories in the book. I mean, this is, I almost feel bad asking this because it's so tough to choose, but you know, when, when you think about all those, you know, stories in the book, what's one of them that just, you know, strikes you the most as far as like just how much of an amazing person, you know, that individual, uh, you know, was and, or who he is, him or her and what they've done for, uh, to advance, you know, uh, everybody else well for me actually probably my favorite and what i've um the one that i learned probably the most was actually billy jean king and i've known her probably since i since i started on tour about 16 17 years ago i've known her 
Um, but I don't think I'd ever really gotten deep into conversations with her about what she had done and what she went through and what happened in 1973 when she played against Bobby Riggs in the Battle of the Sexes, which now a new movie. I haven't seen it yet, but they're, you know, they, they just came out with that movie and um, hopefully I'll take my daughters to see it one day. But I just think I learned so much more about the fact that I knew she had done so much for uh, women's rights movements and for Title IX. But when you think about how many fans came into the sport because of that match, that she not only advanced the cause for uh, for women, for females, but she also helped tennis in general. And what she did for the sport as a whole means that not only should myself with two daughters be thanking her for Title IX and thanking her for um, giving my daughters an opportunity to, to compete in sports that maybe they wouldn't have had, but also just for me as a person, I should be thanking her for, as, as a tennis player, a uh, male tennis player, thanking her for the increase in prize money, the amount of fans that have come to the sport that have uh, come to appreciate it. Because once you create those fans that play, play tennis, they're going to love watching tennis. They're going to be um, patronizing the events and, and coming to, to see. And that's why I'm, I'm also very proud um, to know her and proud that she has um, the entire facility named after her at Billie Jean King National Tennis Center. Um, I, I was so amazed that the two biggest uh, stadiums or uh, venues for, for tennis in America are named after Arthur Ashe and Billie Jean King. James, you know, I wanted to just ask you, too, like, obviously, you've had so many successful years, you know, on the tour. And, um, you know, at any point, did you uh, experience during your playing days, at least any sort of, you know, uh, rough treatment or discrimination or anything at any particular tournaments? Um, pretty publicized event at the U.S. Open with Leighton. He um, accused the lines person of giving me preferential treatment because black. Um, that was early on in my career. And I um moved past it and spoke with Leighton uh, immediately after and uh we sort of and we went on and um and we had uh we had a just fine relationship after that we were uh, uh we played plenty more times so we we had we were okay but i mean i think there were plenty of times that um that i was fortunate to to have um success i had to have the fans i had but i also knew going into some arenas that there were fans that didn't um, maybe didn't approve of me, didn't approve of the fact that I'm mixed, that my, you know, my, uh, my father being black, my mother being white. And I believe when I played my first final in Memphis, um, uh, there's a very small protest going on, uh, outside of it saying, uh, that they weren't giving enough African-Americans wild cards. And, um, someone said to the, the person that there's a, you know, an African-American playing, um, in the finals in there, you know, should be celebrating that. And he, he, quickly shot back that if my mom's white I don't count and you know I felt like that was somewhat um short-sighted and um a little discriminatory as well about that it has to be you know someone that's 100% black and not uh, you know mixed doesn't count or anything like that or mm. in any way it didn't seem um like it was accomplishing the mission that he was trying to accomplish mm. well, well I'm sorry to hear that but uh you know obviously you persevered you know number four in the world is uh, incredible uh, so another question for you is, obviously, you know, you've written a book kind of about your, your struggles on the tour, but I just want to kind of present that for everyone today, because we always love hearing about, you know, how people persevere through adversity, much like you talk about all the amazing people in the book. And so for you, you know, can you talk about maybe one uh, period, a, a dark moment, or maybe just a tough time in your career, and then how you were able to rise back up again in order to, you know, keep succeeding in, in your craft? Yeah, well, I mean, the darkest time for me was 2004. After my dad passed away, I got extremely sick. I was uh, 
had zoster, which affected its uh, shingles and affected my my sight, my hearing, uh, my balance, and um, half paralyzed half of my face. So um, it was a time when I really thought I may never play again, and the doctor told me that that I you know, very possibly wouldn't play again. So um, that was a time that was really tough for me. And the biggest thing that I did that made it uh, that made it possible for me was take it kind of one day at a time, which I know is a cliche, but I tried to set sort of um, achievable goals. So one day it was walk to the nearest deli to get myself a sandwich and not try to not get dizzy because of my balance. And then the next day it was try to be outside for five minutes, try to be a little bit longer, try to, and then it'd be eventually it was getting on the court. And when I first got on the court, I was scared of the ball because I couldn't pick it up. My eyesight was so messed up. I, I couldn't pick the ball up until it was right on me. So um, it was okay. Just go and be out on the court and hit, you know, just drop fed balls and just try to do that. And then it was okay. The next day, now I'm too tired. I can't do that again. I'm going to try it again in a couple of days. And then it was each day, like, okay, I can be out there for 10 minutes. I can be out there for 15 minutes. And every time it was setting these achievable goals of like, okay, I'm getting better in my own small, small way. Um, and I think if I had said at that point in 2004, well, you know what? My goal is next year to be top 20 in the world and get to the quarterfinals of the US Open. It would have been laughable and it would have seemed so far away when all I could do was hit balls, you know, dropping out of my hand that I don't know if I would have accomplished it. So I just set that daily goal of like what I can do today to get better. And before I knew it, I was back on tour. I was doing what I wanted to do and I was improving. All right. I hope you all enjoyed my interview with James Blake. Uh, it was obviously fantastic to uh, be able to speak with James about his experiences and his fantastic book, uh, Ways of Grace, which uh, you can get at tennisfiles.com slash ways of grace. And I'd also really appreciate it if you all would uh, subscribe to the Tennis Files podcast if you haven't already. And you can do that through iTunes or the uh, podcast app of your choice, of course. Uh, just hit the subscribe button. And um, I always like to leave you all with a quote, as I often uh, do at the end of the show. And this one is by Barbara DeAngelis. And she said, We don't develop courage by being happy every day. We develop it by surviving difficult times and challenging adversity. It's a great quote. So uh, I hope you all enjoy the colder weather, especially if you're on the East Coast like me, and uh, continue to find pl uh, ways to play tennis uh, and keep improving your game. I appreciate you all uh, tuning in as always, and I hope you have a fantastic uh, winter season. Uh, all the best and take care. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.